HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for Italian ingredients and pantry staples. Learn more at gustiamo.com. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network, a Gastronomica podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Haushofer. Today's episode, the next issue, is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Today's episode comes to you from the conference Just Food, because it is never just food. The conference is organized by the Association for the Study of Food and Society, the Agriculture, Food and Human Value Society, the Canadian Association for Food Studies, and the Society for Anthropology of Food and Nutrition. Hundreds of scholars, writers, activists, and producers have gathered virtually across the world and some of them have joined us live here today for the taping of this podcast. The conference gives us the opportunity to consider what's next as we study and write about food. What would we as editors like to read in Gastronomica? What are the questions about food that still need exploring? I'm joined today by Amy Trubeck, Daniel Bender and Paula Johnson, all three members of the editorial collective that produces Gastronomica four times a year. Thank you all for joining us and welcome to the show. So if you could just introduce yourselves and tell us from where you are joining us today. Amy? Hi, um, my name's Amy Trubeck and I'm here in Cornwall, Vermont in my farmhouse uh, um, and where we, I live on a apple orchard. Awesome. Dan? And I'm joining you. This is Dan Bender. I am joining you from downtown Toronto, Ontario. Excellent. And Paula? Hello, thank you, Lisa. And hey, Dan and Amy. I am joining you here from um, the shores of Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. My name is Paula Johnson and I'm a curator of food history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Wonderful, welcome all and welcome to our audience. So Dan, what is an editorial collective and how has being in, an, in a collective shaped your experience with Gastronomica? So thanks for the question, Lisa. An editorial collective, it, I think it's more than just a bunch of people, 13 of us, getting together and editing a journal, doing the work that is often done by the single academic. I think it's a bit more than that. I think it is actually the, the collectivizing of work and the sharing of knowledge. And I think it's, it's made for something, first of all, it's a lot of fun. And it is speaks to the, the side of being a food studies scholar that we don't often talk as enough about, which is about socialization and about society and community. But it is also made for something very, very creative. Great. Thanks so much. Um, I wonder if you could all tell me a little bit about um, let's say one article, one submission, an interview or a photo essay in the last few issues that have really excited you. Maybe Amy, do you wanna start? I was hoping you'd go to somebody else first. Okay. Do you mind? It's oh, so no worries. Think about. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do Paula. Let's start with Paula. Sure, happy to. 
Um, I will speak to visual submissions. Um, and in particular, a fantastic photo essay in our first issue, our inaugural issue as the uh, collective, Rick Halpern's uh, wonderful essay, Markets and the Making of Muslim Space in Urban China. Um, the 10 black and white photographs reveal this just vibrant community of, of food vendors as they both prepare and sell foods and as they stand around as one does in an open air market. Um, and this one in particular that is operating in the old Muslim quarter um, in the city of Xi'an in central China. Um, as a reader, your eyes are drawn to and seem to really meet the eyes of the, the people in the portraits, the vendors, young and old, um, as they work in various um, and complex and, and visually evocative food spaces, I'll say that. Um, I think the depth and the clarity of the images and the words are, are incredibly compelling. And um, if you can't tell from my enthusiasm, we'd love to see more visual submissions like Halpern's in the future. I remember that one very well. And I think one of them made it on the cover even. That was stunning. Um, Dan, what's your, your, your piece that you'd pick? Gosh, there's so many, but, and actually this one is, is available free to read right now, but Alicia Galvez's Pacateros and Pacateras, Humanizing a Dehumanized Food System. I actually think that I like it for precisely the same reason that Paula, you mentioned that you like Rick's photo essay so much. It's so intensely human and it brings us inside. It actually humanizes the food system. It really brings us inside the lives of people moving back and forth between the United States and Mexico and supplying the kinds of foods upon which people really need and really want and, and thrive upon. And it does so in a way that honestly makes me want to be an ethnologist, even an ethnographer, excuse me, even though I'm a historian and most of my work has been with dead people. In this particular case, the people come across as so alive and so human and, and fully fleshed out characters. Um, so it's fascinating the same way that in the visual side of it, that they really seem to be creating these relationships. We get a sense in, in Alicia Galvez's piece how the people she worked with are truly human and the relationship between her and them and us be becomes so clear. I love the piece. Great. Amy, what about you? Yeah, I guess I'm going to follow up with um, what Dan said about the sort of the human dimension. And there, there are many different types of pieces that I could talk about. I've been very involved with the part of the collective that looks at the short pieces of what we might call creative nonfiction rather than the scholarly articles, though I've read and reviewed scholarly articles and there's those to talk about too. But, um, you know, we did the special issue with the COVID dispatches and there was the visceralness of those dispatches and the sort of moment in time aspect of those dispatches in a way sort of sits right between history and anthropology in the sense of their primary source documents, but they're also in a sense, ethnographic vignettes in many ways. And there's one, and I apologize, I don't remember the title, but it's this uh, young student who's in a hostel, which is like a dorm in India when the shutdown happens. And it's about what happens to the food in relationship to the different ethnic and religious backgrounds of the people living in the hostel. And for some reason, I love that piece. It's it's not the most elegant uh, in terms of its writing, but the humanity of it and the feeling like you're right there in that moment um, in place and time was just really powerful for me. Um, Amy, I want to follow up on that because the, the editorial collective has produced Gastronomic and, and this podcast for a few years now. Um, and so new, you know, new trends, new themes have come up, in, you know, in, COVID was, was a big um, event that obviously needed attention. Um, what would you say were new approaches and new questions that have emerged in the time since we started producing the journal? 
Okay, so so you mean by like from us reading the submissions, what are we learning about what's happening out there? Right, exactly. What sort of new what new approaches, new questions have sort of emerged in this time that in some ways have come or is, you know, if somebody else wants to chime in on that question. Well, I mean, I think in a way what I would say I've been sort of mulling or ruminating about as the years have gone by is one of the first things we did was this uh, really amazing uh, Smithsonian Food History Weekend. Um, we were all together for that. Um, and at that, there was a, a chef, Sean Sherman, who's Native American, who talked extremely eloquent, really interesting person who we then have an interview with him in one of the early, uh, I'm not sure what, which one, but an early version of the uh, editorial collective Gastronomica. And what he said then, and then what's been happening, generally speaking about this idea of decolonizing diets is something I'm very interested in. And I think that we could do I'd love to see food studies really kind of really get into that in a really complicated way, both theoretically and empirically. Um, so that's something I'm thinking about for sure. Great, thanks. Let's talk a bit more about the next issue. So Dan and Paula, could you give us just a sneak peek of some of the pieces, either food phenomena or scholarly that you think will interest our listeners and readers? Well, I'm happy to go first. I am, there's a, some great material coming out and there's some great material in the pipeline. I'll give a sneak peek of one. Debal Deb's Rice Cultures of Bengal really excited me when I saw this. It looks at the many, many different biotypes of rice in Bengal, but it does so in a way that, again, I'll just returning here time after time to this theme of humanity, it doesn't give us the Linnaean categories of different types of rice. It blends the culinary, the human, the cultural, the agroecology all together. And suddenly in reading that piece, beautifully illustrated, and this is the voice of this incredible organic intellectual working in Bengal. Bengal suddenly appears to me as this rich tapestry of many, many different types of rice. And, it's in, and, and suddenly the culture of Bengal seems to be one of many rices, many people. And I love the piece and I, I I love it for all kinds of different reasons. And I think I'll be giving it to both my classes and local restaurateurs. Great, thanks. I personally can't wait to read that one. I haven't read it yet, so I'm looking forward to that. I think for me, the article that's in the pipeline that I'm really looking forward to is an essay with once again a, a spectacular visual component. Uh, and this one is from my colleague, Steve Velasquez, um, who is a curator in the Division of Cultural and Community Life in, uh, at the American History Museum. He does Latino culture and food history. Um, you know, Steve's article really focuses on a collection of stunning uh, screen prints that are part of the Smithsonian American Art Collections. Uh, the prints are from the 1976 Calendario de Comida, a series of calendar illustrations by Chicano artists that portray scenes of, of Mexican indigenous myths and, and foodways. Um, and so each month of the Calendario approaches food history slightly differently. And the resulting prints are, are just beautiful and engaging. Um, Steve's essay that accompanies these uh, prints discusses, you know, of course, the context of the 1970s and agricultural labor and migration, the Chicano movement, the work of Chicano artists and activists um, also in portraying culture and community. Um, I'm a fan of this because it is about so many things. It's about the labor and justice, um, art, uh, community activism and of course food. 
I think, um, you know, in a more general way, uh, not a particular piece that we have in the pipeline, but, you know, I think more generally, I think that our our readers and our listeners uh, want to hear new voices, diverse voices, and different perspectives, um, reflecting, of course, various uh, academic disciplines, but also life experiences. Um, So our, our aspirational next issues may you know, have more of those short interviews like the one Amy mentioned with uh, Sean Sherman, the sous chef, um, you know, people whose food-related works and their lives, um, you know, may not be as widely known as they should be. So that's my aspirational article for the future. Great, thanks. Uh, that actually leads nicely to my next set of questions, uh, which is that many of our readers come to Gastronomica digitally or through this podcast. Um, So I was wondering if you could all think a little bit about what you think a food studies journal will look like, feel like, sound like, and so on in say five years. And who would you like to pick up our next issue? So what kind of readers would you like to reach um, with the journal? Um, I wonder if Amy, do you wanna start this one? Uh, sure. Um, so I would say that one of the reasons why this collective sort of came together and absolute total shout out to Dan Bender for having the vision, pushing through the vision, keeping at it, just just amazing amount of uh, work and, uh, and and just passion for Gastronomica and the collective version. Um, But when we all first came together, many of us came to thinking about Gastronomica and wanting to put our time um, into the collective version was because we really, really appreciated the eclecticness of the the way Gastronomica was organized in its earliest days and the way in which it, it never said that there was only one group of people that should be reading it and that there should only be one group of people that should be writing in it. And that there was, if we were, it was an ecumenical journal that was also really looking for trying to be a little bit on the edge, kind of pushing uh, the assumptions of any particular reader um, and also trying to combine really, really good writing with really, really beautiful visuals um, around food. So I certainly hope that that continues in the future. I, um, and I think that we're all realizing that it takes a lot of work to keep that level of uh, many flowers blooming at all times in different types of varieties of flowers. Uh, so, but I guess in such an interesting question in five years, you definitely like, I would, <laughs> Paula will laugh a little bit, but I really would like to see a genre of really, really good, really interesting writing that's sort of creative nonfiction about our food system that's not based in the personal memoir. I, you know, I'm really glad that the food memoir has done so well in our culture, <laughs> but I, I wonder if there's another genre that we could create and then promote at Gastronomica. We've been really thinking about the interview as another genre that might be able to tell stories in compelling ways, but we're not just focusing on individual or personalized experience. Um, So I think about that and I really, really want in five years for um, a young person who's committed and passionate about thinking about food and studying food and to feel as if gastronomica is a place has a place for them and will nurture them and get them to feel confident about writing and then publishing in our journal. Great, thanks so much, um, Dan. How about you? Well, I I'd agree with everything that, that Amy just said there. You know, it's it's fascinating to think back as I want to think forward. I found gastronomica. We're on our 20th year. I found it about 20 years ago, and it was so different from other journals that I was reading for what was then my disciplinary field, right? Instead of the the sort of severe 
Puritan like cover. There were beautiful pictures and people. And then I saw it in all kinds of places, right? You'd find back issues in a butcher shop or in a supermarket. Um, you'd find it on people's coffee tables where other journals in other fields just were never found. And that was something we really wanted to, to protect to amplify and, and to continue, right? And I am so excited about the ways in which people use the many different forms of what gastronomica is now to make arguments about food and that the visual are not just illustrations, right? They're arguments. And sometimes the words play the more illustrative role and take a backseat to, to the visual in many ways, when I first got interested in gastronomica and was reading gastronomica, you'd have your physical issue. You'd read it from the beginning until the end. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily how people read today. They might find it online, read an article, skip to something else, skip to some other journal um, fairly smoothly and easily. I, I hope they keep coming back to gastronomica. But I'm hoping that we can continue to break down some of the some of the confining elements that come with a hundred pages of text, right? or 50 pages of text and be able to use sound and the moving visual. And in, in some ways to, to blur the boundaries between, and I'm looking at Paula on my screen here, to blur the boundaries between what a museum exhibit is and what a journal article is and what a podcast is as compared to an article. And maybe articles begin as podcasts and then end up in the journal. Steve Velasquez's piece, I think, I think shows us some really exciting directions in, in exactly that way. Can I make one other quick point, which is we write in English, but do, is that always the case that we need to be? Are there ways that we can become far more multilingual as we engage with new kinds of translation technologies as well as translation techniques? Is there ways that we can become, to move beyond the English? I think we're trying to do that in some of our efforts to print critical translations right now. Can we be, continue to step down that roads in five years? That'd be great. Collectively, collectively. Collectively. <laughs> what about you, Paula? What would you like to see? I agree with my colleagues, both of them. And to tell you the truth, you know, I know that, Dan, you were the, the, the force behind the uh, editorial collective, but Amy, I think you were too. And in my mind, the two of you are the powerhouses. Well, actually, along with a few other members of the collective, but, you know, you all have just been, you know, such champions. And the vision um, of these, this being um, something much more than it is right now, that we are dynamic and we are moving in a different, many different directions, um, but, you know, who will pick, who do I want to pick up the, the journal? Um, you know, sometimes I, I'm over um, literal about things, but I gave this a lot of thought. And, and I do have high expectations because I work in the world's largest museum and research complex. Um, and that is a research complex striving for radical inclusion. And what that means is that we want everybody to have some kind of relationship with or dip into the Smithsonian. And I have that same expectation for gastronomica too. I want everybody to pick it up. Um, I hope that educators and students and policymakers and workers will be, you know, picking it up uh, now and in five years and, and even beyond. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't mind if, you know, I had just a, a photo of um, Chef Jose Andres, a uh, humanitarian <laughs> advocate, um, reading Gastronomica as he's taking, you know, a break, although he takes infrequent breaks, but a, a break from somewhere in the world where he is, has organized World Central Kitchen to be feeding um, people in need. And in this little fantasy of mine that he's reading it, he puts it down to go back to the paella pan or the sandwich line or whatever. And 
someone else who is working in that kitchen or in that parking lot or in that field um, picks up the journal and takes a look and then puts it down. And then somebody who is a government official and somebody who is an educator might run across it and take it home and share it. And so, you know, again, that's just a, a, a little dream of a, of a narrative, which is that, yes, people will pick it up and then they will share it and pass it along. Um, to the point about, you know, the journal and, and what we're striving for to really draw people in and to engage people, you know, it, the journal has to have beautiful and compelling covers um, along with incredible um, um, writing and illustrated uh, essays. Um, but I, and I think that it should, you know, have something for people who are at different stages in their professional careers, in their uh, culinary journeys. Um, and, you know, maybe that's a, a bite for everyone, but bites that really have meat on the bone is, is what I, you know, think of when I think of what we are really striving for, for gastronomica. Paula, I had a, an experience just uh, a few months ago before the pandemic, where I was sitting in a, in a restaurant in St. Louis, Rob Connolly's Bull Rush, and he was giving this extraordinary his description of the historical research-based cooking that he does. And I said, you know, have you ever thought of writing something in Gastronomica? He said, Gastronomica, hang on a second. And he rushed, it was an open kitchen thing. And he rushed back into the back and he came back with this big framed print of Gastronomica where his restaurant had been mentioned a few years ago. And that was the basis for a long conversation. And then we just printed an interview with, with Rob in, in the current issue of Gastronomica. And you could listen to his podcast a few years ago. So again, it's kitchen consumption, new voices. It, it was a really exciting moment. Yes, to all of that. Uh, so one of the things I've loved most about being part of the editorial collective, that it's almost like having a, a finger on the pulse of a field or and a community as it sort of moves and, and develops. So maybe we could do a quick Robin round of, um, as you know, as people who sort of have this um, this finger on the pulse of the field, what are some of the themes in the study of food that you're seeing uh, emerge in you know, in pieces that have been submitted to Gastronomica and in the, in the sort of transactions you've had with um, authors and, and readers through the journal. Um, I don't know who wants to, wants to start. Any volunteers for this round? To me, I think it's pretty clear that um, politics is a through line. Um, but I have a sense that, that there are, will be more articles dealing with food systems and issues of, of equity and justice on all levels, national, international, local, regional. I think that our experiences in the early 2020s um, is really shining such a, a huge light on uh, the um, the challenges ahead. And, you know, I have this sense that, that there are people working at all these levels in different ways that kind of um, shine the light on uh, themes of resilience and justice and, and community um, that uh, relate to various aspects of the food system. Um, you know, I had thought that there would be more kind of technology, innovation, science kinds of contributions. I don't know why I thought that, but I'm not, I'm not really seeing a groundswell there. Uh, but perhaps, you know, that is another area that could emerge, you know, as we, as we come through the, uh, through the pandemic. Um, and then just one more thing, and, and Amy will laugh at this which is food and memory because it's such a hardy perennial, but it's certainly strong, you know, what we've saw in the COVID essays and, you know, as the, the virus pulses throughout the world, I mean, the, you know, we, we need to hear voices from around the world in expressing um, the, some of those aspects that we, that we heard from in the, uh, 
in the special issue related to, to COVID right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but it seems to me that as isolation and loneliness and loss just continue to swirl around so many people across the world, that, that food and memory in a time of crisis is something that we will be hearing, uh, hearing about more. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that they um, will, will have that voice that, um, and that immediacy that we were able to, um, to hear in those early essays. Great, thanks Paula. Uh, Dan, do you wanna chime in? Uh, chicken has merged as a theme in, in research. We have um, gone from, from Bolivia a few uh, issues ago to a current article on um, agri-food and chicken meat in India. And I think in our next issue, we have a piece about uh, raw chicken eating in, in Japan. Actually, it's a great theme um, and it speaks to something about um, the ways in which gastronomica really often can really drill down on, on the culinary. Um, but it also speaks to something about technology and it speaks to the different kinds of very specific ways in which people religiously, politically, ecologically, um, in family ways relate to global flows of, of, animal technologies, if you will. Um, even more broadly, apart from chicken, um, you could create a whole course on chicken by skimming the pages of Gastronomica, and I think it'd be a really great course. Um, but near and dear to my own research, there's so much work on mobility and movements. That, and this is a, it's a hardy perennial, to use Paula's lovely term, but I think it's a, it's a mutating hardy perennial. Um, we get new variants on, on how we should understand um, mobility in its both liberating and its oppressive uh, uh, contexts. I'll, I'll just throw out two examples. I mentioned Alicia Galvez's just gorgeous piece about the pacateros and pacateras. Um, but I might also throw in um, Rose Wellman's piece on halal jello, biomorality and blessing in the Islamic Republic of Iran, which, I mean, I'd never thought about jello at all before, but here was this piece that looked at, in again, deep ethnography and affectionate ethnography that looked at the ways in which people in Iran were making sense of this globally circulating food, claiming it as their own, and mixing it in crucially with issues of hospitality. So to me, we, we've gotten, people are really engaging with mobility and movement and place in really, really exciting ways. Wonderful, thanks. Amy, did you want to chime in? Sure. Um, yeah, so I guess I would say that one thing that I see is sort of emerging, and I would love to see more of this in Gastronomica, is I think one of the things that is kind of getting unpacked and has been unpacked a lot over the last 10 or 15 years in food studies is this sort of association with certain kinds of foods and certain kinds of culinary organization with nationalism and and nation states, and that's starting to kind of, I think, get, you know, it's 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 not irrelevant, but the relevancy of it to explaining all of the human experience has really, you know, never been complete. And I think increasingly uh, doesn't work given the way we live. And so I love the articles that are in a sense cataloging um, sort of practices, um, because also I think I've always been very, very interested in um, ingredient and culinary biodiversity. And I think we're always fighting a fight against uh, homogenization. I just, I just think that gas, anything gastronomica can do to show really all the complexity that's out there that's also in peril. I think that's really important. There's one that I think it's just came out or it's coming out, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't able to go and look specifically at, at the last couple of uh, journal articles before today, but one that's about pickles in Japan 
um, that's in a sense an ethnography, but kind of, uh, again, sort of, we're really playing up the botanical theme here, but it's also in a sense like an, a botanical atlas. And I love atlases. I love catalogs of anything. So I would love to see more cataloging and it could be anything like it could be pickles. It could be, you know, home cooks making tamales. It could be whatever, but it's that sense of the many that are building and helping creating in a sense, what makes a cuisine in any particular place would be, I would love that. Um, I also, I'm very, very, uh, there's an increased um, intersection now between people do work in food studies and food systems. And I'd like to see more integration of, in a sense, a humanistic way of understanding the experience of food with the sort of systems analysis point of view. And though I'm not against a political, an idea of um, critical or political ways of analyzing situations, I would really like to think about systems failures and system success and try to understand those both from the point of view of a social science or a natural science approach, but also from um, the humanities. Great, thank you all. And we're now going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Gustiamo's mission is to improve the quality of Italian food in the States. They independently import the best and most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers, wonderful people dedicated to their land and their traditions. When you're searching for quality Italian pasta, San Marzano tomatoes, and real extra virgin olive oil, Gustiamo has them all. Shop their vinegars, coffees, sweets, and so much more. From Northern Hilltop Hazelnut Farmers in Piemonte, to Southern Sea Salt Millers off the coast of Sicily, Gustiamo works exclusively with small family food companies in Italy. When you shop with Gustiamo, you'll know that your ingredients are authentically Italian and of the highest quality. For our listeners, Gustiamo is offering a 10% discount on your online order with Gusti code HRN. Learn more at gustiamo.com. That's G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O dot com. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten, a Gastronomica podcast. This is Lisa Hausofer talking with Amy Trubeck, Daniel Bender and Paula Johnson. Amy, Dan and Paula, I'd like to now invite all three of you to think about the next issue metaphorically. So what's sort of the next um, thing we need to turn our attention to? What still needs to be studied? What's not there? Can you give us a theme or two? How should we write about food perhaps differently or picture food? Paula, do you wanna kick us off? Sure. Um, you know, I'm always advocating for hidden stories that are in plain sight, um, you know, or almost in plain sight. Um, so this would be an invitation for authors, potential authors, to access the collections in museums and libraries and archives um, that exist for you. <laughs> and you will be rewarded, uh, perhaps, in, in unexpected ways. And I'll just point out that, Dan, here was, you're, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, but you were working on a project about zoos, animals, zoos, okay, and came across um, a scrapbook and a journal kept by the spouse of the director of the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., in the Smithsonian Archives, um, as they traveled uh, to India and Indonesia, I believe, to collect specimens. And what Dan found was this really provocative cache of writings and, imagine and imagery kind of relating to food and culture and imperialism. Um, I don't have that issue in front of me, otherwise I'd hold it up. But I felt that that was like Dan is looking for bears and he found um, the, 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 uh, the menu um, in, on an uh, ocean liner going, <laughs> going across the Atlantic and then take it from there um, through the, the jungles in Indonesia. Fantastic. Um, you know, just to make a, the point uh, stronger that archivists and curators like myself, we collect objects and documents and ephemera and art and other materials. 
And these are meant for everyone. Um, again, we were about not only access, but also uh, include radical inclusion. So please, um, if you're out there, think about that. You know, we're all trying to get more of these collections digitized so you don't have to come to Washington. Wouldn't that be great? Um, but um, it takes a, t a while, but it's absolutely, there are, there are things there that um, we don't even know about that people with a food history lens or a, an uh, ethnographic lens or, you know, environmental anthropologist lens will look at and say, well, where has this been all my life? So please uh, do that. In, in terms of writing, um, I'm always drawn to pieces that have a strong point of view and that ha have an engaging style. Um, you know, it's just over the years, um, I just, I, I am, I live for stories. I live for narrative and I, I live for beautiful language and, um, imagery. And so those are the kinds of things that, that really stand out and that I hope, um, authors will take into consideration as they're moving, moving forward. Um, in general, for me personally, I'd like to see more art submissions and more more literary submissions, um, along with, um, you know, the big, you know, it's a big tent and there's a lot in there, but uh, we're a little low on art and, and, and uh, literature right now. That'd be great. Amy, what's the next issue for you? Yeah, um, so... I do want to say I agree with um, Paula about more literary, expressive, and evocative writing. Um, again, possibly not based in a singular food memory, but that's okay. Like we could we could read more of those. We could definitely read more of those. Um, I also am very very interested. I think Astronomica is such a good place to. Uh, nurture writing about changes in everyday life and the system's consequences of those changes. Um, because I think that's also, again, capturing that space between sort of history, anthropology, uh, literature, and sort of area studies, because, you know, it can be a very specific or particular change in everyday life in one place that can then have all these systems consequences. So one of the ones that I've been noticing, and I'm not going to do anything about this. So if anybody wants to go out there and, and do some research on it, is um, I'm really, really interested in the decline of the use of China. So like a particular kind of uh, dishes in everyday American life and the system's consequences. And the reason why I think about this is I go to auctions and thrift stores and you can get China first, like nothing right now. And it's because there's a whole generation of people who's basically dying or going into assisted living. And the subsequent generations, we've had this informalization of home dining and many, many people having um, dinner parties in restaurants. And so this, what used to be this extremely crucial rite of passage, which is you become an adult and you get this very nice set of China, I don't know exactly what's happening with that, but I think something profound and I would love to have somebody kind of like check this out and I'd love to do a, a world comparison. Oh, maybe this is a world history comparison project, Dan. Uh, like how does this work in other parts of the world? Um, okay, and then the other thing I'm really, I think we don't do enough personally in food studies is understand the affective re relationships that people have towards certain kinds of restaurants that are really fast food or takeout restaurants that have really, really powerful, long lasting memories. And there's also many systems consequences of the effective connection people will have to let's say um, Popeyes or A&W or whatever. And the storytelling people can have about those types of places is some great storytelling. I'd love to see more on that. Um, and then finally, uh, the everyday life uh, and all the contradictions and perils of our global commodity uh, food chain, especially in terms of spices and herbs um, and the system's consequences. So things like vanilla and cloves. And that's like a law. It's, it's the story that starts the story of the global 
food supply chain. And it's still a story that we could keep talking about and studying. Great, thanks. Dan, what about you? Well, I'm excited about our new translation effort to try and get people to be translating things into English. Um, and the effort to try and create new dialogues across language. I actually kind of want to see somebody take that translation the next step, which is to read a translation and retranslate it back into what it might originally have been and then to see some of those changes. So, uh, And, and to see what kind of recipes get produced and what kinds of knowledge that produced and to really judge those, those differences. So translation upon translation upon translation. You know, the other thing, and this is a really personal one, and I think I'm following on a lot of what, what Amy and Paula have said is, I love pieces that talk about foods that didn't change the world and talk about why they matter. Um, We went through that stage in food studies where you had a lot of books, including a lot of popular books that was, the title was always something like Ingredient X and How It Changed the World. And they were fun to read. They made for good ways of giving very interesting undergraduate lectures, and they were often fun books to read. But I find that there's so much of those emotions, um, so much of the the ethnographic, the individual, the human in the foods that, that didn't change the world, but profoundly matter. You, in the current issue, Constanza Ocampo-Rader, who was in a podcast very recently, her article about, about um, crayfish in Peru and the people who collect them and how it fits into the ways in which Peruvians of a particular river valley eat is just gorgeous. And, and it's not just, it is about the crayfish in this river valley, but it's also very broadly a method of, of how we can look at the any number of different ingredients, biotypes, varietals that into which people have so much excitement. So yeah, I'm interested in a piece about Cabernet Sauvignon, but I kind of want to hear a piece about some varietal that nobody has ever heard of that somebody somewhere is been maintaining for several generations. I'm interested in apples, Amy. I love apples. I love maple syrup. I kind of want to read a piece about maple syrup. Um, has anyone ever written a food study of Quebec's maple syrup reserve and the great maple syrup, syrup theft of a few years ago? So it's those foods that didn't change the world. I love reading those pieces. And we also have a comment from the audience on the topic of the you know the next issue in the future from Marsha Brooker Halperin, who says, I love the idea of journal articles having multi multimedia components online, accompanying video clips, photo essays, of course, podcasts and interviews, interactive timelines, online recipes with video, etc., which is certainly something that um, we are um, trying to do and have been experimenting with as well. So thanks for that. Um, so before we conclude, I just want to do another quick round robin uh, and, and get really concrete here. So what would be great submissions that you would love to see at Gastronomica. Just give us your, your dream submission titles, your dream ideas. Um, maybe let's start with Dan. All right, so I gave you the maple syrup one, so I'll go in a completely different direction. Um, I, uh, in the, this is the material culture one. I want a long history out of an individual pot. Maybe it's a wok, a croy, a frying pan. I want that history. And it doesn't need to be somebody's personal wok, Amy. Um, but I want that individual history. And I want to, to see that in all of those, those genre-challenging ways. The interviews, the podcasts, the videos, and, of course, the object at the center of it. Excellent. The personal pot. Uh, Paula? Sure. Um You know, one of my one of my favorite issues of the journal was uh, five 
point three in two thousand five, which was an entire issue. I'm looking at Amy. Um, entire issue devoted to Julia Child. Um, that is, you know, I, I look at it every week. Um, and while the collective, we haven't really talked about special issues, I think every time it's come up, you know, half of the members go, yeah, no, 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 we can't, <laughs> we can't do something um, like that. But I, I don't know, it's raining here and I'm right by the bay and so water is on my mind. And so I've been thinking an issue on water. And this is something that, you know, I, th- I, once I started thinking about it, I got really int- intrigued. But it's, you know, it is the whole waterfront, so to speak, with water rights, you know, for indigenous communities, uh, water for agriculture, uh, impacts of climate change on the food supply, uh, but also on the, the coastal fishing communities that we that we know and love and know that are, are changing uh, rapidly. You know, I, I can see a, a piece addressing, you know, what happens when there's too much water, too little water. You know, Hurricane Maria, um, the uh, drought in uh, California and wildfires, and what that does to the Cabernet and many other uh, grape varietals. Um, but it also, you know, it also brings us resilient gardeners and gardeners gardens and gardeners, um, uh, vineyards and, and vintners. Um, so, you know, it's aquaculture, aquaponics, um, water, or maybe not for food preservation, water for cooking, culinary traditions, floating markets, um, you know, watercress, watermelon, <laughs> you know, water into wine, um, like water for chocolate. I don't know, but I just have this, I, I've been thinking about water a lot and, and I, I can sort of start, I can sort of see this issue and I can already see its cover. So maybe we should do this. <laughs> anyway, I'll stop there. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Amy. Yeah, I, can't, I think I sort of already said some things um, apropos of that. So I'll just follow up with, I'd love to see um, any articles and, and they had so many different ways in which one could write. This is the other thing is, is I think getting pieces where people are more experimental with the genre within which they write a story or a piece. It could be a scholarly essay or a creative nonfiction, but um, where, where these everyday life elements of, and then how we live today and help us make sense of all of that. Like, I would really like somebody to help me understand how you can learn how to cook on TikTok. And I would just really want to understand like the social media and I, I, and I'm like, you know, I don't understand it. And yet there it is. And I would, anything that makes me go, wow, I didn't understand that. And now I understand this better. I love any piece on any topic related to food that does that for me. So um, that's what I'm looking for. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Amy, Dan, and Paula for joining us. And thank you, audience. Listeners can read more from Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our current issue, volume 21.1, is out now. For more details, please visit gastronomica.org. Thank you.